This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Thomas Newman. Now, Thomas is a renowned coach, sports scientist, and the chief innovation officer at Hawking Dynamics. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into sport, the power of data analysis within sports science, selecting elite tactical and sporting athletes, fostering longevity, his own extremely powerful mental and physical health journey battling a brain tumor, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Thomas Newman. Enjoy. Well, Thomas, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for being patient while my dinosaur computer rebooted. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? We are located in Boston, Massachusetts. So where I was born and raised. Well, perfect segue because that's the next question. So tell me exactly where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in Boston, um, whole life. Um, my mother was a nurse. So, uh, again, kind of caring for others has been central part of kind of my ethos growing up. So, uh, just me and her and she went on, got her PhD. So I got to see someone highly educated, highly trained, but also committed to her craft. And so, um, that was huge and kind of being the only child, uh, I got all of it. So, um, you know, that intensity that she brought really kind of instilled into me, I think, both in how I, you know, I carried myself in school and then also too in the profession now. So, um, yeah, it's definitely been part of my, uh, makeup, if you will, of what's, you know, led me to my, my journey today. Well, what is, what was your perception? I mean, you're an only child, but then you've got a mother who doesn't have a job. She has a, a career, a profession. What did you see as far as how she was able to balance the two? I mean, she was so tough. I mean, my goodness, like people think that I'm, you know, grizzled and you know driven and whatever but i'm a cream puff compared to her because she was able to balance a phd full-time job and with me and and you know we were irish catholic so i didn't grow up you know i didn't grow up getting things handed to me but you know i think learning about you know my first business was in fourth grade and it's funny story i tell people um i hated taking out the trash but that was your duty and i said man this this really sucks and i live in a condo complex that has 60 different units and I was like, I bet there's other people that hate taking their trash out. So, um, you know, I got a loan from my mom for a wagon. And so I got the wagon, put all my trash in. I said, well, now that I'm out and I went door to door and I started my own trash business 
and I charged a quarter for a bag of trash and then it was a dime for um, recycling. But what happened is, is in the neighborhood, um, people started uh, just, you know, giving me a dollar here, a dollar there, but we did it once a week. Cause that's what I had to do. But then I was like, man, I bet you I could do this, uh, you know, twice a week. And then it turned into three times a week and enough that I had my neighbor ended up pulling the wagon and I could just go door to door. Uh, we got shut down by the condo association after a few months. <laughs> um, but again, that's kind of been my entrepreneurial spirit. I try to you know, find problems, find solutions. But I, I get from my mom that kind of, if you're going to do it, do it well. So anybody that knows me, I'm pretty intense, pretty driven um, for the things that I want to do and and really taking your time before you get into something to be committed to doing it all the way. So even in high school athletics or college athletics, it wasn't, I'm just going to play sports. I want to be the best there ever is and the best there ever was. And then professionally, I don't want to win the conference, I want to try to win a national championship. And so I think a lot of that comes from her because again, she did so much for her field and career. I mean, spanning over, I mean, her first job was at Mass General back in 1960, 62, or maybe it was at the the Baptist, um, but she taught all the way up until 2011, 2012. So that was quite a, quite a journey uh, that I got to watch. Now with um, you know her being a single parent, but in a profession that, that at least today pays somewhat well, were you driven to earn because of any element of of needing more or was it more you know wanting to contribute to the family you, when you look back now what was behind a fourth grader being so innovative i mean again i'm pretty lazy i didn't want to do it but if i'm going to do it i might as do it, do it well um and i mean we didn't you know we weren't struggling it was just your basic metro west boston you know family one car and we went to public school um, so I wouldn't say I was deprived of anything, but my mom would be like, if you want to go get this, go, go get it. And so, um, and she would support, like I said, you know, you give you a loan for the wagon. Well, guess you, you paid that loan back, no interest. She thought it was a great deal. Um, and so, um, but that's kind of what she taught me is that if you want to go, if you want it, go get it like, and think it through. Um, but she was always, you know, you know, she was one of those ones. If you join the team and you hate it, you don't quit. You know, you don't complain about playing time. You should be so good. There's no question. Um, and again, I think a lot of that was imprinted early on, um, because I never, I mean, in my entire time, I can't think of a time where she would whine or complain. I mean, she just was made a steal and she's like, just go do it. Like there, there was no other option. And I think that that is something I'm truly grateful for, um, instilling both on a personal level and a professional level. So with athletics and sport, what were you playing and doing in school age? Uh, believe it or not, uh, I actually was pretty good at volleyball back in the day. And I know now I'm uh, gravitationally gifted. Uh, I tend to stay low to the ground. But back in the day, uh, we basically had the equivalent of if uh, Bill Belichick decided to coach in a local high school, uh, Peter Sujo was uh, our coach, along with Andy Mather. But uh, Peter had just come from Europe. His son was 16 and actually got a full ride to USC. So any of our California listeners may remember the name Donald Sujo. He played on three Olympic teams. His father was my middle school uh, volleyball coach. And so we were running offensive play schemes, playbooks, and all this kind of stuff at, you know, 10, 11 years old, doing statistics um, and running the offense. And so um, we did really well. And obviously, you know, at the high school level, it's cool to see we had a bunch of guys band together to do something great. Um, and we did. And so then that run throughout high school was pretty awesome. Played club. Some of my best friends I've been, you know, and I think people forget this in sports, it's the relationships you build my outside hitter, I was his best man in his wedding. And we can tell stories about, you know, training or lifting or anything like that. But it was a, it was a great opportunity where athletics um, gives you kind of a little microcosm to, to build relationships. So we did that. 
Um, and you know, the record, and I tell the story, um, now we went 24 and 0, we won everything state championship. I'll never forget one of the parents said, congratulations. This is the best athletic accomplishment you're ever going to have really enjoy it. And I remember looking at him and being like, I'm just getting started. And he's like, you're a cocky little and <laughs> sure enough. Um, yeah. And it wasn't that it was how you had to be player of the year. So we did that and, you know, all American did that. And so throughout those times and those things are club team, I think went 96 and four, which is still the record for the club, but nevertheless, it's high school, but that same mentality, it wasn't just go play volleyball. It was beat, you know, school much bigger than you, um, be better than them. And we were, we were pretty psychotic with training all year round in the, mo- in the morning, at night, in the snow, set up lights, get creative. Um, and I do think that that helped me a lot when it got into coaching, because I think you can only, you can only train to the level that you've been a part of. And that doesn't mean you have to play. Um, so there's some great coaches in the NFL that never played in the NFL, but they have mentored under those that um, have gone, gone to those high heights. So having Peter early on in my career, talk about numbers and statistics, I think probably helped a lot of my influence to where I am today um, with Hawk and dynamics, because again, I, I see the game of sport and movement a little bit differently because um, breaking everything down into numbers is kind of my thing. Well, speaking of mentorship, you mentioned that you grew up with your mother. Did you have any relationship with your father at all? I did not. No. So that was just, again, that's all I ever knew. But I think a lot of the male influences I have came in the form of coaches. Um, and then obviously just people within you know our tribe and community. I think about my friend from third grade, her father um, was an incredible person influence. And again, plumber, you know, I come in and complain about something be like, Oh yeah, you want to crawl through a, you know, a pipe with me and you can go see what that smells like. Maybe, maybe you, maybe you just go right back to doing your lifeguard job. And I was like, Roger that, like, got it. So um, that's where I think a lot of my influence comes in on that side. When you look back at the way you were coached middle school and, and if you, you carried on the high school, that level as well, with a 2023 lens, what were the things that they they were doing right, and what were the things that maybe they thought they we were doing right at the time, but now you know X amount of years later we realize that wasn't the best way. It's hard to say because again, when you're dealing with generations, I think generational coaching is different. I mean, sure, even you know probably yourself, there's things that are just different, and and giving the information they had at the time, um, it was the best, but maybe they would do things differently. But I mean. Again, they were output driven of trying to, you're going to go win a state championship. You need to be the best player in the country. You need to do this. And it was very black and white. And I think at that time period, it worked. And we also had individuals from 11 years old to 18 years old, seven years in that system. Um, By the time that senior year rolled around, there was no other option. There was no other question. And people would always ask and you know, I know they have that Kanye meme, which didn't age very well about the, you know, what would happen if I didn't succeed? I guess we'll never know. We weren't going to leave it any, at any doubt that we weren't going to win. And I remember guys across the board handling it differently. And so I think that intensity, you know, we were forged in that environment to do something great. I don't know now, um, at the, especially at the high school level, um, if you can have such a black and white contrast without having some problems, because again, we do realize where it fits within the community and the environment. But again, if you want to do something elite, you got to go outside of your comfort zone. And I think more than ever, for a lot of good reasons, administrations have been very mindful. Like you're not doing these workouts now uh, for mental toughness and getting away with it. You have to be really careful. And so I think that's good. Um, But I also do think that I don't know if I would be where I'm at today if you you didn't really. There are consequences to your actions or inactions, and it impacts the people to the left and right of you. And that's so analogous to 
both, you know, sports, but also professions. And so you start becoming more of a selective person, I would say, where you want to try to find people like you. So that way it's not an issue. Like if you call me and say, I need you at three in the morning, there's no question I'm going to be there versus, well, that's outside of my work zone or that's not really, I'm kind of tired. Nobody wanted to hear that. And again, that was really good. But I think today, I don't know how much that black and white intensity um, would be received, particularly at the high school level. So an observation that I've made, and I've talked about this a lot, and it's people like yourself that are the right people to ask these questions, either you or you know, someone who is a, an athlete and or a coach. When I first moved to the States, and I've told this you know many, many times, but um, very, very long story, very short, I was struck by how many people I met, Uncle Rico's quote unquote, who told me the coulda, woulda, shoulda been story about whatever sport they were in. And it always ended the same way. Well, I blew out my insert joint here at 18, 19, 20. And I'm like, what in the fuck is going on in this country? In the UK, yes, there are some elite athletes in all sports, but it's you you don't have that elite performance in the school and college level normally. So that, And there certainly isn't the money and the TV exposure and all that stuff behind it. So what you see in the UK, or at least when I was young, was you would finish school, you graduate school, but people would still play their sports. There was longevity in movement, in, in sport, in games. Whereas here, I saw a much higher level of athleticism in the high school than collegiate athlete but then almost like a complete drop to inactivity after they they went out with some of these conversations now it's like well where is as you touched on before where is that fine line between performance i want to win for my school but also wellness and longevity for these children basically that we're responsible for yeah and i think the the most concise answer that I can give is that if someone gives you their body and so you're, you're a coach, strength coach, whatever, to the greatest degree, you need to make sure that those transitions are set up well. And we've seen this across the board. You know, you're the high school athlete. Well, then that's your identity. It's not a sport. You're not an athlete. It's part of who you are. I'm a volleyball player. I'm a football player. When that final whistle blows, and I remember when we lost to Hawaii by two points in the, the, the third set of the, you know, the final four um, out, and I believe it was Arizona that year, in that final whistle blew, I was like, wow, it's over. And I don't know if people handle the it's over very well. So I've looked at a lot of the LTAD stuff um, across different countries where they do a much better job of transitioning. You were a player. Well, guess what? Now you're an alumni. So it's not over. It's just now changed. And then when you're done with being an alumni, you move into being a junior coach and then you become a senior coach. And so trying to make sure that people don't feel like that, you know, that final day comes and then they have to reboot, I think is critical. I know for football, you know, the linemen's a great example. They finish in November. We play Harvard. Well, guess what? All spring, we're putting them on weight loss plans because they no longer need to be 300 pounds. It's not good for their longevity, but also to their whole life has been structured down to the minute, probably since Papa Warner or, or, or junior high school. And so now being 21 years old with all this free time, it's not necessarily a good thing. And not saying you have to force it because again, out of 10 guys, maybe you have two or three that, you know, feel fine or they're self-motivated or they're just, they're, they're glad to be away. And that's totally cool. But the individual that just misses coming to lift at three o'clock with the music blast and why are you just booting them out? And I remember seeing that. So I think as a practitioner paying close attention and, and the military talks about this too with the seals and the guys coming out of you know uh, the elite army units you, you got to have a community and a tribe because when you take someone out like that 
bad things happen because so much of your decision making on a day to day basis is on the guys and, and the ladies to left and right of you. And when that is gone, I think people have a hard time with it. So that's where I think that could be handled better. Absolutely. It, it aligns with something we were talking about recently. Um, I had a, a female high school student on the show about two years ago now, Emma Benoit, and she didn't have acute childhood trauma. She didn't have a lot of these commonalities that a lot of these people do have when you know when they end up getting to a point where they want to take their own lives. And Emma actually pulled the trigger. She survived her attempt as in a wheelchair now, but now she's an incredible force in the mental health side of advocating for you know positive mental health. But one of her big things that struck me is that her stress was she was going to leave school. And there was some, there's a little bit of bullying and all that kind of stuff as well. But ultimately, we forget that these children have been in these schools since they were three, four, five, whenever they kind of began pre-K. And now they're 18. And they may feel very successful as a football player, as, you know, my son's in JROTC. So there's, there's these tribes. And then one day, they're going to be given their piece of paper and then they walk out the door. And some of them are going to find another amazing tribe and they're going to thrive. But some of these kids are going to be on their own. And, and like you said, that door is closed, that whistle is blown. And I think we've really got to look at the mental health impact of that as well. If we're not transitioning our kids from high school into hopefully more sports and movement, but also into, you know, creating a bridge into especially a trade, if you're not going to go and become a doctor or a lawyer then all these amazing things, fire service, for example, that you can go into so they don't hit a brick wall the moment they leave school. Yeah, and I think you have to also, and probably one of the things that I've grown a lot as a coach, um, I've always been by the numbers, black and white, analytical. But really, as I've gotten older, and I, I credit a lot of this to the, the researchers I worked with at Yale, looking at the emotional intelligence and really looking at the emotional profile of someone and how physiologically they may be downgrading or deconditioning, but their mind still might be sharp. And again, it's very hard, even from a neurochemical level, of what gets them fired up. And I would tell the story to the players. I said, how many of you guys love seeing your game stats, getting likes on Instagram? And so they all raised their hand. I'm like, cool. How many of you guys, when you were little, like to get presents from Santa? And they raised their hand. I said, what if Santa gave you presents now? And they all kind of gave me this weird look. Like, what are you getting at? I'm like, but how do you feel when you give a gift to someone else? And they kind of pause. And you do get this moment where your satisfaction or self-worth validation comes from the act of within your tribe providing, protecting, or producing things. And I think that, again, to your point, where if that gets ripped away, just on a chemical level, you don't feel that same happiness. You know, you expect to be great, um, but you want to help other people. And I know people struggle with that. Um, you know, you made me think of, so Scott Atron is a researcher out of um, Michigan, and he did a really famous study where they actually did fMRI scans of detainees um, in Guantanamo. And what they found, and again, you think about ISIS fighters, extremists, things like that. How do you get to that point? You know, firefight. How do you get someone who wants to run into a flaming building or, you know, in the military, run towards the bullets? Those are non-conducive uh, um, beliefs for longevity of life, but for some reason they must do it. And in your top performers, regardless of run, running, push-ups, sit-ups, all that kind of stuff, there's a biological and structural difference in the brain for those people that have a propensity for team. And so that selection process, I think, is so important to be mindful that if you have someone that's very, very um, receptive to team, don't just bring them into something and then rip it out. And then you can see it. And you'll see those guys coming a mile away. And we used to talk about the rule of three in football. If you go out on the town, 
three of you got to be together. And they, everyone will be like, why? Because the rates of incidence of issues with individuals when they're in the group of three, out of three of them, one of them is going to say, this is a dumb idea. Two of them, they might egg each other on, but for whatever reason, that group of three, and that's how powerful relationships can be that I don't want to let you down. I want to actually make you look good. And that's why if you ask any of the elite operators, oh, you guys are so brave. So what's the first thing they all say? Nope, just doing my job. Didn't want to let my team down. And it is horrific for them to think that they would let let their buddies down rather than letting themselves down. So I think that you as a coach or you as an instructor need to be very mindful of where that person is and realizing that even some of the toughest dudes, if you've listened to some of Sean Ryan's uh, podcasts, he's on tough, tough dudes coming on and crying. So you can't just say, oh, we'll just deal with it. You know, it's only words. And I, and I think being more mindful of that is probably going to have the greatest impact in coaching in the next five to 10 years is how do we understand that and nurture that and not just blow it up because it didn't work. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and it's so pertinent to the first responder professions as well. So speaking of, you know, the, the work that you do now, kind of walk me through the beginning of that. So when you were in the school level, what were you dreaming of becoming? And then how did that take you into the sports science world? Yeah, so my my iron bug moment is what I call it, is when I had stress fractures, I was a senior, our team was going to be ranked, our club team was nationally ranked, everything's going great. And then in the fall, my, my shins just started hurting like bad. And I mean, I would push through it and play, but I mean, it got to the point where it was super bad. Like it felt like I was getting hit with a baseball bat every time I landed. So we went over to the hospital and they, you know, do the imaging and you've got stress fractures. You got bilateral stress fractures. And of course the question was, when was the last time you had a day off? And I was like, mm, eighth grade. So, um, you know, cause we would play all year round. And so then I had to stop and that sucked. That was hard because I watched, this is supposed to be the flagship year. You know, I you know was all excited and looking forward to it. And that was taken away from me. So now I had to do PT going through that process. I'm like, hmm. And then I'll never forget, I was in Walpole, Massachusetts at Core Fitness. And I had gotten some magazine that talked about speed ladders and drills. So I was like, well, it's in the magazine. I should try that. So I did some sort of botched rendition of the icky shuffle and or just other footwork. And the guy came around the corner and goes, hey, you want a plan? You want a workout plan? And I was like, who are you? He's like, Brian McDonough. I'm the director of strength and conditioning here. And I was like, what's that? So he kind of explains it to me, whatever, does an eval, does some stuff, wrote me a plan. And I'll never forget that I do the plan. And like each day I got stronger. And then the jumping, I jumped higher. And I was like, how does this, how, do, how does this thing and that thing together? And then there was a, we go through it. There was a picture of me at Penn State. And again, I am all of, you know, 5'10", probably trending 5'9 now, um, where my whole face and head was up at, you know, eight feet and I'm penetrating and I'm doing the block over the net. I'd never been able to do that. And I remember telling him, I was like, this stuff's magic. And he goes, it's not magic. It's exercise science. Go learn it. And so that set me up in the spring to go to University of Rhode Island. And so I finished with a degree in communication and a minor in kinesiology, but spent a lot more time hands-on training and, and just really became fascinated with physical culture. Uh, I didn't know it was called that at the time, but just historical stuff of training and then, you know, learning the science and the physics was super great. Um, and so I took that and ran with it um, and did my internship. And that's how I ended up in my first college job at Salve Regina University. Uh, and that was super impactful. And so I had a really great mentor in Tom Blaney. Um, and he was another one of those ones figured out FIO. And then you come in and, and you learn. And then we had a weird exchange of where the textbooks didn't line up with what was really happening. That wasn't how it worked. And he's like, correct. 
And so then you start figuring out, and you just start racking up floor time. And so I've had a lot of great mentors since then, but I do credit Brian McDonough taking the time. I didn't have money to pay him. Uh, he now has his own facility and works with the New England Patriots. So he's continued to, to work with countless Super Bowl champs and everything. But I thought that was such an important moment because he didn't have to reach out. He didn't have to do that. So as he paid it forward, um, that made a big difference on me. And so I'll always, I did something this summer with the local high school, um, some training stuff. And so you always, I think you need to have at least, at least 5% of your kind of year, have something to give back and give it to the kid where it can make a difference, the middle school, the high school, um, and just, you know, instill to them, instill in them that they can be great. I think a lot of people forget that some young individuals just need to be told, Hey, go be a badass. Hey, go be great. Go shine. And, and how powerful that can be for, especially, like you said, someone who maybe at home doesn't have that. That's where as a coach or an instructor, you can make a profound impact way outside of the athletics. Absolutely. Well, I mean, my son has that at home. I mean, you know, I like to think I still walk the walk, but I still step back and his mentors in JROTC and track and cross country do that as well. Because I think that's the other thing is even if you are creating a good environment for your child, you've also got to have the humility to know that you're not the expert in that area. And, you know, some, I think some parents think that all of a sudden they know the entire world of soccer or whatever it is that their kids just started doing. But if you've got a good leader, step back and let them lead. Yeah. And I think where those dads mean well, the, and the helicopter parents in general, uh, moms too, it's okay to care about your kid. But when you start doing the, my kid's not getting enough playing time, you know, you need to go out and practice. I think that is, we've shown with research, that is the worst thing you can do to instill lifelong love for activity because then it becomes a job. And at some point the kid may be really interested in middle school, but then high school, it's not there. And I fall back on that whole thing that my coach said to me is whatever you want to do in life, do it passionately. But if it's not, then step out. And I think people need to have those moments to step out. And no matter how, you know, I think about with my son, you know, when I, I brought him in and he's going to do a workout with me and I don't remember if he's in middle school or whatever, uh, but he goes, when am I going to get to work with a real coach? I was like, excuse me. He's like, I want to work with coach whoever, one of the interns that I had at the time. I was like, yeah, right on. And you're always going to be dad. Yeah. You're always going to be mom. Or husband. And I think people remember that. Or husband. Yep. And just stay out of your, stay out of the way and try to be supportive. And when they're ready. Um, try to provide a buffet of options. Don't try to shove the food down their throat and make them, you know, do it this one way. Cause what worked for you may not work for them. And all you're doing is creating friction where it doesn't need to be. Absolutely. Well, I coached at a CrossFit gym and a few years ago, one of my fellow coaches who um, in the CrossFit world, where he got to the top level that they had at the time, I think it was level three or four or whatever it was. Very, very intelligent guy. Um, and my wife was training at the time as well. And I would, you know, say, hey, babe, you know, you need to you need to do this, this, and this. And she would just ignore me. And I'd be like, all right, Steve, can you tell Becky to do this, this, and this? And he'd tell her. And she'd be like, oh, that's such a good idea, Steve. Thank you so much. And I'd just be like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. But though and, you said you sometimes you do. Yeah, exactly. Someone just have to say, all right, you, you listen to them. They know as much, if not more than me. They're now your go-to person. And more importantly, you'll actually listen to them because they're going to, you're going to say, do an extra rep. And they're going to be like, yeah, you still didn't do the dishes last night. And like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we bringing this in for? But just again, know your, know your lane and stay in it. Now, just touching on the sports science for a second. I did my ex-phys in the University of North London, a two year, and then finished up at UF. And an observation, being a coach the whole time as well. And when I say a coach, a very part-time coach, um, was I didn't see a huge application from the academic world 
to set you up well to be a strength and conditioning coach in the real world. What has been your observation of the academic side and that transition? Yep. Um, great question. Research in academia is super important. It's a super important for advancing knowledge and physiology um, and leveraging all the, the valuable things that science can do. But the practical applied field has a lot of different constraints that researchers don't always you know, jive with it. You know, I, I love when it's like, well, you know, do this workout, this workout, um, you know, whatever. And I'm like, well, what if there's a giant exam on Thursday? What if coach gets pissed and like runs the hell out of them on Tuesday? How do you take that? Well, don't because, because remember science wants to control as many variables as possible. Um, but that's not real. And so actually speaking with Dr. Kramer and, you know, we're actually working on a book, um, that'll be coming out probably this summer with human kinetics, where we try to break that down. And what we boiled it down to is there are three C's that you need in order to be successful. So you need to have the credentials. So we're going to go and say, you need to know like where your elbow is and where your kneecap is. Um, so that's foundational credentials. So you need to know what a par cue is. If you're going to be training, you're going to need to know, um, how to do coaching cues. You're going to need to know the difference between a counter movement jump with your hands and a counter movement with your hands on your hips. So you need to know of those things. The next thing is you need competence. And so competence is the ability to apply that knowledge. And that's really a competence is where you have two branches of, of passionate people. You're either going to go into research where competence means you're standardized and you're thorough. Competence means you're now taking that knowledge and putting it in a packageable product that works. And so you have to have higher levels of emotional intelligence. And remember, in the hard sciences, biology and you know physics and things like that, the brain that goes into that is very analytical. So to find someone who's got the range to, you know, be able to read the room, read the facial expressions, also be able to calculate a power equation. That's, um, that's a thing that, you know, you kind of genetically have to be wired for and then, and mentored, and then you have to run the system. So I think about computers, like you mentioned, you have your computer boot up. Some are going to boot up quick. Some are going to boot up slow. We know for a fact from when I ran the internship at Yale, it's roughly 500 to 800 hours of floor time, coaching, active coaching floor time to make you like usable, like less likely to kill somebody where you have enough wherewithal to be like, wow, the crash guards are down. Or you know what? This person looks like they're having a bad day. Maybe it's not a good time to go heavy. Um, so that's just to be, you know, somewhat, um, somewhat hireable. And then you need to get your certifications and stuff, which goes into your credentials. So now you've kind of got that. And then the next thing is the commitment. And where this is where I've seen is that you can have some really good people that like after 10 hours of work in the week, they're, they're shot. And I think especially now, as we look at the new paradigm of sports, you have a sports scientist, and then you have a data analyst, and then you have a nutritionist, you have all these ists, probably about nine to 10 ists that now are involved in the development of an athlete. And each one of them has various levels of commitment. I think that's probably where I've seen uh, some of the greatest, you know, uh, friction is, is that you have someone who's super, super good at what they do and they love coming in from eight to two, but the athletes all need to be seen at five and, and they've got a family. And, and again, it's no fault on the individual. That's what you offer. But as an administrator, you need to look and say, well, what you know, for the next six months, what is the commitment level, you know, and as people get older and they have more experience, they also have a lot more responsibilities and that's not to a fault, but that needs to be managed appropriately, even down to little things like scheduling, having consistent scheduling. So that way you can have alignment. So you really need 
the credentials. So you do need to know kind of things. You need the competence. So that's your internships, mentorships, seminars, and you need as much as you need and everybody's different. Um, And then you have to have that commitment. I mean, pretty typical we see in strength and conditioning. People get excited. They come in in their early 20s. They get their degree. They either get a GA, a master's, or an unpaid internship. Then they get picked up at an assistant level. They ride that out. Some go to directors, or then they they branch out or burn out. And so we see that in between the 30 to 35-year-old range. Um, And so, and I can even speak for myself, you know, had a great time at Yale. It was an awesome experience. We accomplished a lot of firsts evers. Um, But also now at Hawken, the idea is that I can, you know, have a conversation with anyone in the globe. I'm working on rehab in Cairo. I'm talking to people in you know Bangladesh and people in in Chile for how they're approaching their talent ID. So it has a step. And so for me, um, you know, I followed almost that course to a T at you know 35, saying, okay, how do I make an even greater range? And it was probably one of the best recruiting pitches our CEO ever made. He said, "Good job doing all that stuff in New Haven. Why don't you want to take it to the next level and make a global impact?" And I was like, "Oh, that's very interesting. Let me think about that." And that's how. I got into touch all into touch with all the operators and people like that. I just wouldn't have time in the college setting. So I think that's really the role academics plays. And I do think it's important. And even people say, well, grades don't matter. Grades kind of do, because let's be honest, we all know that like physiology and anatomy sucks, but do you have enough wherewithal to get a 4.0 or get a 3.5? Because the grades, all that showed me was your commitment to trying to get it done. If you roll in with a 2.7, 2.5, I'm going to say, what? Ha- oh, I didn't like school. Well, guess what? In the profession, you're going to do a lot of things you don't like. And if your degree of liking it degrades how committed you are to excellence, that's a problem. Like I can teach you science. I can teach you reps. I can teach you teaching. But if excellence, you know, committing to excellence isn't in your vocabulary, I don't know if that can be created. I think you either have it or you don't. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. One more kind of tangent before we walk through Yale and and the data analysis and all the incredible things that you're doing there. You mentioned about shin splints. I touched on, you know, overuse injuries resulting in these, these, you know, basically handicapped 18-year-olds. Um, one thing that seems to be a common denominator that's come from a lot of the coaches on the show is they're the athlete that just has driven down one sport their whole childhood seems to have a much higher likelihood of injury, but the multi-sport athlete seems to be a lot more resilient. What is your perception of that idea? Yeah, and I get it because what they're trying to allude to is repetitive motion. And obviously, I think someone who plays soccer probably, because again, it's on grass or turf versus a basketball player or maybe tennis where the surface is hard. And also, Soccer, you're predominantly running. Those are things that we do. But take someone playing ice hockey, that's not normal mammalian. Nobody wakes up with skates out of the womb. That's a trained skill. So I think your hyper-skilled sports are probably a little bit more um, track to get overtraining. But on the flip side, on those three-sport athletes, well, the reason why they play three sports is because they're really good. So, you know, sometimes you see those single sport athletes, you know, I think we had a kid in our, in our, uh, area in high school, uh, he played on the football team and he was the quarterback and won state titles. Then, you know, he was at six, two, he could dunk and hit his head on the rim. So he played basketball and then he played baseball in the spring. And so his three sports wasn't out of him trying to preserve his longevity. I do think that, you know, if LeBron tried out for the ping pong team, nobody's going to stop him. Right. You just have this kind of athleticism. So whenever we look at those problems, I don't know if I'm down the track of specialization because there are 
places that do it right. Like you mentioned in England, the Aspire program and some of the other, um, call it talent pipelines. Those are going on and they're managed fine. But in the United States, we have a problem is that high school coach isn't talking to the basketball coach, isn't talking to the club coach. So I think it's a load management problem knowing that every individual, their resiliency to their load uh, is largely genetic. And then with their training, if you are weaker and more elastic, load hits you differently than if you're slower and stronger or even fast, but strong to absorb those eccentric shocks. Shin splints, tendon issues are because something took the load that isn't really supposed to. Well, that's a perfect segue to, you know, where you found yourself. So a lot of people, when they think of strength and conditioning, excuse me, strength and conditioning, you know, we're looking at you know, the regular blueprints and, okay, if I do A, B, and C, then athlete, you know, X is going to do, you know, perform this way. You found yourself in a much more analytical arena. So walk me through how you found yourself in, in the kind of data space and then how that applied, especially as you got into Yale. Yeah. I mean, as we mentioned, the data stuff was really hammered into me in seventh grade where we were sitting there in ninth grade going to Boston College. One of our coaches worked with the club team there and just statting and charting. And so the law of large numbers became pretty evident that, you know, I can make you better, you know, someone who has a 300 hitting on the outside in volleyball, they're never necessarily going to be hitting 600. Uh, the person who just is always late, not squared away, that kind of end product that the numbers don't lie. And where people get in trouble is they'll say, you know, vertical jump, or we've talked before, bench press. They pick one thing. And I think that's probably the biggest mistake that I see now, both as a coach and someone who works at Hawk and where people get married to this one thing, instead of realizing we got to look at a collection of things, create a weighted composite. And then that composite is a great driver of failure, not success. I, I've said time and time again, there is no such thing as talent identification, you know, there's only turd identification. You can say someone who's four foot to, I mean that, and then by the way, anybody listening, I say that with the most loving, uh, you know, appreciation for people that try myself included. I was really good in high school, but guess what? At five foot 10 playing, you know, setter in volleyball, the next level up would have required me to be taller. And I can't, there's nothing I can genetically do to get taller. Um, and so you kind of reach these limits. And so that's just the nature of the composite. And I also think that there's nothing wrong if you don't have an elite composite, just if you enjoy pickleball, if you enjoy golf, do it. Like I, that's my, currently where I'm at in my stage in my life is whatever you can do to get people moving and disconnected and unplugged all for it. Like I'd rather people try and try and you're not doing it at that elite level. When we talk about sports, I mean, if you want to win, we, we know the recipe for this. We, we know how to go through, and especially the more money there is in a sport, the more refined that composite is. So if you told me you want to win in football, we can give you a blueprint to do that. You want to do it in basketball? Now, when we get into Circus Soleil or ballet, that's tricky because there isn't the same kind of money as there is, say, in the NFL. And so that's where we're starting to see more research going towards building these composites. And if you use kind of an insurance risk management, risk mitigation model, that's very effective. And you know, I think about some of our customers that had their first year working with us and, you know, magically it was the best year ever. And now they all got new jobs. So super cool. Um, glad that it worked, but they had to initially take that leap of faith when we're talking about some of these things about giving meaningful numbers in a composite format that they can ultimately do something about um, with realistic confidence and, and reducing those liabilities. So whether it's on a roster, 
Um, you know, 20% of the team is going to make up 80% of the production. That's the Pareto economic effect and it's everywhere. So instead of trying to make that 20% better, let's go for the low hanging fruit and make that 80%, 70% or 60%. And the reduction of a liability is an asset to a program. Now to an individual, and, and we talk to on the individual operator or in, in firefighting, do I necessarily care about the guy on the job who's been there 15 years about making their 40 yard dash better or their bench press better? No, that individual has an incredible amount of experience and we need to make sure that they can still touch their toes, that they have healthy range of motion, that their sleep, because now when they started, they were a single individual and now they have a family. And so this person isn't sleeping and they've been put on a 24 hour shift. My focus on the composite now goes to that you know, reducing those areas of friction. And that's ultimately what makes a bigger impact. And so really using financial modeling, but I still, you know, long-winded answer to say it goes back to what I saw in high school. Um, and then now applying that um, into the domain of training stimulus. Well, I have a lot of questions when it comes to the tactical athlete, but before we do talk to me about where Yale was at and then what you brought, you know, you and your team brought to that particular college and then what the results were. Yeah. So it was a crazy story in that I had a, I was a CEO of a, of a tech startup for five years and we had software that we had built to, to do the modeling we just talked about. Um, and that came to an end and it kind of just took some time to recharge, but having so many different customers at the college level, uh, Yale was a customer and they reached out and they said, Hey, all that stuff you did before at the other company, would you like to do it here? I don't know, go back and forth. But then I remember getting the call from the head football coach and he straight up said, he's like, we haven't beat Harvard in 10 years. And I'm like, all right, right. Harvard, yeah, got it. And then the lacrosse coach said, we want to win a national championship. And I, I calmly remember talking to both of them and we worked out a deal and I started there in January of 16. And in hindsight, I probably came off pretty arrogant that I said, yeah, no, we can do that. But I'm so confident now with what I know in the data and, and how to manipulate it with training to get a result, we did it. And then that first year in 20, uh, 2016, I think we went three and seven, but we beat Harvard, which again, at Yale or Harvard, either of those institutions, you can, you can lose every game, but if you beat them, uh, it's a success. So people were really excited. And then in 2017, not only did football beat Harvard again, uh, they won their first outright title since I believe the early 80s. So now this is like, you're just getting lucky in football. It's on an upswing, whatever. Um, but lacrosse wasn't doing too shabby either. And so in 2018, we played Duke at Gillette Stadium here um, and beat them in the national title, which was shocking. And then we had the player of the year, the Heisman, uh, for anyone on the West Coast who doesn't know, the Heisman for lacrosse is the Toraton. And that's a really big honor that nobody had ever even been nominated for. And our captain, Ben Reeves, who now is in med school, going to cure cancer, uh, he uh, he got the number one player award. So we literally won everything possible for the two teams that I had had, you know, just within about two years of implementing this kind of approach. And it's not, you know, people ask, what's the, what's your favorite workout, best exercise? Let's, let's not talk like that. It's a very much individualized medicine approach that we developed. And then eventually when I was promoted to oversee the entire department uh, as the director of sports performance and innovation, I was able to leverage all of the tools at the university, build custom hardware, work on analytics. And then I was lucky enough. And I say this in every podcast I'm in, I had the most incredible staff ever assembled. Uh, I believe at the college level that you look at what we did 
we looked at some of the graphs that we were doing. And I'm talking about, we got to the point of figuring out if I take you and I measure your elbow and I measure your knee with the DEXA scans we had with the med school, we could forecast how much lean muscle you had. And we knew that if you were an offensive lineman and you didn't have at least a certain size elbow and a size knee, you weren't going to get to 200 pounds of muscle, which means you weren't going to be a first team all Ivy. And so we embedded that into recruiting. Same thing in lacrosse. We started finding these unique things that really gave us really good predictions. And so think about fantasy football or fantasy sports. We were so far ahead of our time in 2017 and 2018 that it really set Yale up for success. And when I left there, I believe there were 16 teams in the top 25. We had all Americans. We had football players getting drafted. I think currently there's five or six in the roster, which has been a long time if ever Yale had that. But the leading tackler for the second year in a row is a Yale guy, Foye Aluakin. And that's an individual that... He's a great example of he did everything that we asked in our program to buy into the process and he saw the results, but he didn't do it because he said, I will do this only until I get um, to the NFL and be one of the best linebackers ever. He just did it because he believed in me as a coach and that allowed him to go shine and his successes will continue him, Rodney Thomas, Dieter Iceland, you know, Jaden Graham, all these guys will continue to go on. So I'm really excited about that. Um, And that's on the men's side, but then also, we got golfer of the year. You know, we had some gymnastics uh, ladies become all Americans. The, the lacrosse team, women's lacrosse team hadn't had a winning season in a long time. And then they were nationally ranked in the top 25 you know, women's, women's ice hockey. When coach Bolden come in, I don't think they had a winning season ever. And then they made it to like the final four. So very exciting to work with such incredible athletes. Um, and that's the thing probably I missed the most is that the Yale kids were very smart and they probably taught me more than I ever taught them because they're going to be rocket scientists, brain surgeons, who knows what, and they were just really exceptional people. And so I do miss that. Um, and then my staff, and since then the staff has gone on my first intern I ever had, uh, coach TJ, he's now the director. So that's great. He's carrying the torch, but then each of the assistants, you know, they're now VPs at this place or head place or head trainers, and they're scattered all across the globe. So we had 160 interns come through that program and it's been a really great community that we stay in touch with. So that I think was, you know, I consider that time kind of my master's um, in sports performance and then excited now that as I transition to Hawk and take those lessons I've learned, um, but to really crank it up another level um, kind of in the research and analytics side of things. So that's obviously the, the collegiate sports man and woman. Um, you know the the community that I'm most passionate about, obviously, is tactical athletes. George Ryan is our mutual friend that connected us, an amazing athlete himself, an amazing high performer in the law enforcement space. You have this lens on this uh, this young athlete, the student athlete, for a long time. Walk me through your transition into working with some of these tactical athletes, um, and then what were some of the principles that you were applying to sports that you started also applying to the selection of these men and women. Yeah, I know you mentioned George and he's a great friend. And again, someone that, you know, I turn to just kind of, I think about him as one of the people in your network that you, you ever need to bounce an idea off of him. uh, He'll listen and he gives you great feedback and it's been very helpful to me. And it gives me insights, not only from his perspective as an instructor, but someone who's actually done it for years. And I think that's what makes him unique. And when I listen to him, um, I was introduced to him uh, via Jason Shea here in Boston and seeing that. And he was the one who really opened the door for me to work with law enforcement, where I started looking around. I'm like, this is a really challenging problem. I mean, there is literally billions of dollars globally poured into sports. 
I don't know, maybe you do about how much money is going into law enforcement research. I don't think it's billions. <laughs> yeah. Let's just go with a lot less. So it's certainly a lot less, but if you took it for what it is and, and firefighting and law enforcement and I call military as well, there's a set of really unique tasks that have to be performed a lot. And normally in sports, you, you know, you get more stats, you win the, the celebration is there. But what's weird is in the tactical community, that's just a given. Oh, and by the way, if you mess up in the hundreds and hundreds of good things you do once, it's now a national incident or it's an international incident. So I thought that a completely inverse um, reward system was very unique. And then the other thing is in sports, I have a lineman. He's going to go up against another lineman, a tennis player. There's a uh, there's a set fit, a set. Um, fixed rules. There's a, a court size. So, you know, some of the SWAT guys, you walk in, like, you don't know who's in the building. You don't know if this person's on drugs. You don't know if it's an ambush. You don't know. And so now the constraints of the game change. So now we have two really, really unique problem sets that you have to think about it. And probably more than athletics, I put a lot more focus in on the individual operator. And we talk about their job. I think you'd mentioned some of the shifts. Maybe they're 12 hours, 24, 48 hours. But there's 168 hours in a week. And what I found was there was a lot of opportunity within that 168 to recover a little bit better, to reinforce a joint or mechanic. When you know someone steps out of a vehicle or they hop a fence, how are they landing? Are they landing hard? Are they landing soft? Are they landing hard because they're weak or because their kit is different? I know one of the guys was explaining to me that the some of the older veterans have a much better kit layout. Well, on the force plates, I can see that you know some of the younger guys might load up 20 pounds on their right side for the way that they load their mags or the way that they carry a breaching tool. Well, maybe that needs to be switched or maybe that needs to be centralized. And so there's things. And so more so than ever in tactical it's about what what's the low hanging fruit within the 168, not just the game. I don't know if that makes sense because um, we're always talking about conditioning and this and that for the game, but you have no known game. And in firefighting, my my uh, I mentioned to you, my uncle is in Cambridge Square. They might go out on six you know calls and not get out once, and it's just a fire alarm, or it could be literally the most important thing in their career, and so that kind of impending doom. I don't know if it's doom or excitement, but that just kind of um, anticipation, I think that weighs differently than the individuals like, oh, I have five games this week and I know here's the scouting report. There's none of that. And in operations and, and firefighting, you have specific tasks that you're going to have to do so we can practice that. If you're not strong enough to pick up the hose, we can make you stronger and I say er because I don't need you to be a power lifter, but I need you to be strong enough that that isn't a major struggle. And so we can look at different contexts of movements of skill and of tactics and then reinforcing it. And, and I don't have an answer uh, yet because, again, it's something that's ever evolving. But I do think that in the community, you have the early fit individual. And then there's a weird time of seasoned experience. But Maybe they have a wife, maybe they don't, maybe they got divorced, maybe they have kids. You have kind of these other factors that weren't present at the beginning of the career. And then on the backside, um, that older individual that's now broken down, 
And so they can't be, their mind might be sharp. They might be the best at leadership and decision-making, but physiologically they can't do the bare minimum things that need to be done. So then they get pulled off the truck. And that I think also is really devastating for someone who identifies with their group to be physically told they can't be on the truck um, is really hard. And so that kind of goes into our conversation earlier. If I'm a leadership position, how am I managing that? Well, it's interesting when you said about the the contrast between sports and the tactical community with after the radio goes off, whether it's a firefighter or a law enforcement. I always remember this, you know, talking about our dispatchers. So you have them in a, a call center and they're taking these calls. Someone's actually dying on the end of the phone, but they don't get to do any physical release. So you think about a stress response back in, you know, older times it's usually because something's trying to kill you you're going to be fighting you're going to be running there's going to be a physical release so the dispatchers have that all the time the fire and police we have it some of the time so the tones go off we don't know if we're going to be climbing to the top of grenfell tower in london or if it's a fire alarm you get cancelled halfway there you turn your lights off turn around so you've had this adrenal response especially if it comes in as something very acute but an a so another unit takes it in the end so you're ready for a cardiac arrest you're ready to cut a family out of a car and then you don't so you know it the the unknowns in this profession i think the only only sport that i think physically that even come close to mimicking what we do is probably mma because of the different you know stresses and angles and the way you're falling and all these things everything else has some sort of predictability to it even though there are variables in a tennis game or football you still you're going to be running one direction you know someone's coming at you you know going to hit you a certain way hopefully not in the head and they're not going to kick your feet away or but in in a fire i mean who knows what's going to happen in there is the fall going to give way is the ceiling going to land on your head you know the stairs going to fall through so there are all these different variables which makes you know as you said making the base of a firefighter or a police officer as strong as possible imperative because we don't know really what exactly we're going to be exposed to so the the more of a, a foundation you can build in these responders the the higher chance there is of surviving whatever they go into yeah and i would even say with an mma if we wanted to make it closer is it you're going to fight someone within the next year we're going to give you i don't know what was your average call time on the truck um, it, it would depend, but usually I think we were there within about three or so minutes. So, so you're going to have a fight this year at some point, you're going to get a phone call and in three minutes, you're going to have to go into the ring. We're not going to tell you who you're going to fight. So you have no scout and they might have a weapon, but we're not going to tell you till you get there. And they could also be on a lot of drugs and they could also have their friends jump in at any time. Good luck with that. And that's what the thing is that it's just, and, and by the way, if you win, there's going to be no fans. Nobody's going to reward you. You're not going to have a parade. But if you don't, again, it's a it's a national crisis. It's an international crisis. And that's just the weight and gravity. And I know George, I listened to him on this podcast, talks about it. The amount of training, the amount of review, and nobody's perfect. Like, And I think that's really hard to expect any group or population to be perfect. I think you can have the resources and and systems in place to handle things when they need to be handled and try to prevent them in the future but if anybody ever wants to i mean go go look and see what some of our first responders are doing you know anywhere in the globe and it's just sometimes it's a war zone you know and it's just tough and they have families and again there's good apples and there's bad apples but for the majority of the time you know you pick up the phone and you call 911 
you you want someone who's there who's there to call to serve and and I think that's what we need to focus on and the more you support and nurture that the better it is and so it's certainly certainly a tough thing for anybody and just the parallelism but that's also why experience is so valuable you know to get someone 10 years in football that's a coveted asset someone who's got 10 15 years on the force every year that you can make them stay a little bit longer, mentor a little bit more, use their institutional knowledge in the craft and the field and profession. That's, that, that's, you know, that's like gold for any department. And that's where I know we've talked about prevention, getting ahead of things. Don't, don't be reactive. That can be really hard for the people that are counting, counting money to say, well, why do we need to do this extra training? What's our ROI on this? And it's tough because that ROI may not manifest until 10 years from now when, oh, remember that class we took on wellness? Remember that class we took on you know stress response? So I think it's a very unique challenge and something that I'm excited to continue to work on as we go forward. Well, speaking of ROI, that's a, that's a good tangent for what I wanted to put to you. Again, you have this amazing contrast of you know collegiate sports and the tactical athlete. In many professions, I would argue probably the fire service is the worst. The Northeast tends to do it a little bit better, but the rest of the country, the, the, the average work week is going to be a 24-48, which is a 56-hour work week. So every third day, these men and women are awake all night, every three days for their entire career. One of the things that I've been trying to get people to understand is the negative, acute, and chronic impact of sleep deprivation on not only mental health, but physical health, cancer, obesity, and even musculoskeletal injury. But the understanding that if we gave these responders more time to recover from being awake when we all sleep in our beds, the ROI would actually be huge on the back end because we wouldn't be breaking them. We wouldn't be paying out overtime and workman's comp claims and, you know, all these wrongful wrongful death or um, malpractice suits, all these things that these companies, or these, uh, excuse me, cities and counties pay, that, that investment at the front would save money, you know, down the back end. What has been your, that's the best way of putting this, what is the value of sleep in the collegiate athlete and how can we apply that knowledge of performance into the tactical space so that there's an understanding of the value of sleep rather than it being viewed as a weakness? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll put a disclaimer that when I answer these, I really come from the uh, Matthew Walker, Peter Atia, kind of that, um, that kind of tribe where we know it's really important. We all agree. And I would even say probably sleep, you know, depending on how you want to argue one, two on nutrition and then physical activity training being, you know, most impactful to longevity and performance of life. Sleep's probably a solid three um, between those two. Um, because again, very few things, you know, you don't eat for days or you have enough water, you can fast. But for sleep, if you don't, like there's a reason why we have to do it. And we're learning just so much about sleep isn't eight hours. It isn't 10 hours. There are actual biological things that are occurring that on a cellular level matter, on a hormonal level matter. In athletics, we know it matters, but yet coaches still 6 a.m. builds character and, and fine. Um, you can say that. And sometimes from scheduling constraints, I know at Yale, None of our professors were giving kids days off. So some started at eight, some started at three. So guess what? At 6 a.m., nobody has classes. And there is a, and we we know that there's a greater propensity for risk there. So you have to manage things a little bit differently. And maybe you can't go as intense. If you do choose to go intense, then you need to 
expect that there's going to be a down regulation in performance or even you know greater risk for um, acute failures. But in the tactical space, I don't know if we're ever going to get rid of the shifts. So I think that's administrative, independent of the act of firefighting. That's a political union kind of large scale change that is years, if not decades, if never going to change. But what we can say is in the time that you have come up with a strategy to have good sleep hygiene. We used to do things about shutting off the blue screen, and especially now. And again, I don't, I don't have any affiliation with them, but Aura, I've used them extensively. And just the insight of how much does a glass of alcohol when you're stressed out, not only does it maybe not affect the situation, but then damages your sleep and certain foods and even just some of the meditative things. I, I'm not a big meditation guy. Um, however, you put that ring on and you can actually see your heart rate come down. You can see your HRV change. So you can actually make a difference. And I think everyone is aware in the classical, you know, Hans Selye's um, gas principle about the, stimu- the, the stimulus, the alarm, and then the super compensation. So you have the kind of the, the training, the blip, and then the recovery. More so than ever, we know that sleep isn't a passive thing. It's actually active part of recovery. And so thinking about that as a slingshot or a trampoline to come out of your stressful environments. And so I would challenge anybody listening here, what write down what your sleep program is, or we call it sleep hygiene in college, and then see what you can tweak. Do you know how good your sleep is? Maybe you only get seven hours of sleep, but can we make it 10 times better? The answer is, yeah, you can look at Thorne. They've got some great um, supplements. Uh, Momentus has great supplements for sleep, but really treating sleep almost as a training, almost as like you're going out and you're doing a training on the, on the truck, or you're going to go to a response, um, you're going to respond to an incident, treat your sleep like that and get it as optimized. And if anybody lives near a city, most people are shocked to know most universities, LA, Yale, um, coast to coast, people are always looking for sleep study. Um, patients for for their research, probably one of the best things you could do is invest in one of those, be a participant, get your readouts and really get a true breakdown. And most of the time they don't even charge you. In some instances, they might pay you to be part of the study. Um, But I think sleep is probably the new frontier for being optimized to make an immediate impact, just like we've seen with training and nutrition throughout the last couple of decades. See, and I agree with you completely on the ownership with the sleep hygiene. The issue I have is that's always a thing. It's always on the responders. My mission is to just hold the mirror up to people that are working 40 hours a week, go home to their bed every night, that are making decisions for responders to work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And, you know, those are the ones that are waking up at three in the morning, running into a burning building or trying to figure out medical calculations on a three-year-old cardiac arrest. So it's the fact that we've devolved to where we are now. It shouldn't be years. It shouldn't be, an, you know, a, a, a mountain to climb. As I point out, you know, we, we had chimneys, excuse me, we had children going up chimneys and working in factories in the Victorian times. So someone said, what the fuck are we doing? This is ridiculous. We're killing these children. This is where we are in the first responder community. Like the department that protects around me, the, the, the county, they work 56 hour weeks, but then they're short staffed. So they tell these men and women, you can't go home today. You've got to work another 24. That's 80 hours a week. So not sleeping, I think that works out as four of those seven days. And now with the suicides you had are through the roof, you know, cancers, all these different things. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping that the the people that make the decisions can understand that without sleep, it affects negatively everything from mental health, physical health, injuries, the whole gamut. 
And if you can look yourself in the mirror and go home after 40 hours, telling these people that they can't go home for 80 hours, then, you know, if that doesn't make people angry, I don't know what does. Yeah, my hope is that we're collecting so much data now on the commercial side and in research. Sleep research 10 years ago was not what it is today. So my hope and what I would encourage um, first responders is get get involved. Get involved with these studies because data is power. It influences politics. It influences policies. But if we don't participate, that's tough. And I know you know, you're out in California and, and we've talked, like we we just have a customer came online, Santa Ana College has a tremendous firefighting program and they're going to have force plates and start measuring kinematics and how they look in gear, how they don't. And that's a tremendous thing. And they're looking for participants. If you're listening, just reach out and start to collect it. And then on the flip side, what's very hard is that especially here today, we're a very Insta world. Sleep is important, but you know what? I can tell you right now, if I told you to stay up through the night, you can do it. But unfortunately, you do that again, you do that again, that's a that's a cultural thing or that's an accepted practice. The impact when the 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 down regulation and when the trouble starts, it's too late. And so we have to let people know that just because you know, smoking cigarettes is another example. If you smoke a cigarette, more likely than not, you will not die on that first time. And I think unfortunately. We can't see sleep. I can see you have a broken arm. You know, I could see someone fell off a ladder. So when we can kinesthetically feel it, touch it, or we can see it, it's there. And that's why mental illness has really struggled. You know, is my mind playing tricks on me? Am I really tired? No. Mental toughness, you push through. And I think everybody has a different amount they need to be optimal. But when you have policies that are setting you up to fail, that's a problem. But in the meantime, until they get changed, the best advice I can give is that there are sleep hygiene things you can do to make the best of it. But if you're an administrator out there listening and, and you laugh, you said 40 hours, yeah, come just run the, the shifts with us. The people that make the policies need to understand because like you said, it's not that you're packing groceries. It's you're going to have to go calculate how much you know medicine someone needs or perform a very life-saving you know, critical intervention. I don't really want that person being sleepy or or cloudy from their mind, but yet it happens time and time again. So that's kind of my take on that stuff, but it's certainly an area that needs to get better. And I hope it does sooner rather than later. Well, again, thank you for your perspective. The more of these voices that we have, hopefully the more, you know, we'll get to that critical point where there will be a change. I want to get to your own personal kind of health journey in a second, but just before we do, you transitioned from Yale to Hawking Dynamics. Talk to me about the company, what you offer. And you talked about Santa Ana. I, I'm in the West Coast now, but when I was at Anaheim Fire, that was uh, you know one of the colleges that we'd go to. So you know what what work are you doing um, in the tactical world with your company now? Yeah, so Hawking Dynamics is a company based out of Portland, Maine, um, but we're in 36, I think even more now countries, and we make force plates. And so force plates for anyone who doesn't know. They're basically this device that you stand on. They've been around forever, um, but predominantly similar to how computers used to be the size of a room uh, and it was a whole floor of a building. Force plates were these big research labs with a lot of wires. Our founder created a way to be able to make that technology that has decades of research into a portable, meaningful 60-pound travel case. And so research-grade data, but now you can go anywhere in the world. You can hook up to your uh, hotspot on your phone. You can do it in a lab. You can take it on the road with a game. And so that's the hardware. 
Hawken Dynamics, though, as a company is really a brand. And so we take that responsibility very seriously as kind of leading the generation of sports performance. A lot of tech companies, oh, it's this new fangled thing. Try this, try that. Is it validated? I mean, just even a simple question, is your technology validated against known gold standards? And companies will try to push more and more and more. Ben's, ben, our CEO, has done an incredible job of staying laser focused on being the absolute authority when it comes to force measurement using the plates. And so we then take that and our staff, myself, I was at Yale. I used the plates. I used it very well for what I did. Well, we also have Peter Mundy, who's a world-renowned researcher and biomechanist out of England. We also have James Heinisch, who's down in, uh, down in Australia. And so he's able to go in and be able to really make sure that when people are talking to someone in our company, we were practitioners. So we like to think that we're the practitioner's plate and it can be really intimidating to people very quickly. Um, but when you set up with your account, and so like I mentioned to you earlier, I deal with PT clinics, I deal with fire departments. So I'll speak to Santa Ana, you know, from 10 to 11 on Zoom like we're doing now. And then I'll go work with someone here um, in New York and then give a presentation to someone down in North Carolina. And so as we've continued to grow across the globe, we're really trying to help practitioners use the historical importance of force plates in their day-to-day practice, but doing it in a meaningful way. Sometimes force plates, people will say, and again, there's a lot of people in our space and you know, they'll say, well, you can test this and measure this and measure that. If I went to the firehouse and I said, hey, we're going to have training today for an hour and I just did testing for an hour, that's not going to go over very well. What we talk about is give us eight minutes. So if you have a one-hour training, give us eight minutes and what can we see both in your output, so how high you jump, how much force you can produce, and then your strategy, which is, yeah, you jumped really high, but you landed like a sack of potatoes. If you continue to do that, that's probably not conducive to longevity. And so we break things into either output or strategy and then develop a plan. So after those eight minutes, and when I was at Yale, we would do that 45 individuals, we would then select the workout for the day. And where that becomes incredibly powerful is you essentially get a two-week radar system of understanding poor strategies, which is really what takes you out of the game or takes you out of the fight. But we can also use it to help our guide our developmental program. So say it, I think about San Jose volleyball is a great example. The strength coach and the sport coach and the athletic trainer, all three of them had different dashboards. So they didn't look at everything. They looked at their dashboard to make better choices and better decisions for the, decisions for the ladies. And they went on to have 20 wins this past season. It was phenomenal. And that's how it's supposed to work. So that's really Hawken Dynamics. And we've done a lot of research. We're continuing to push forward, but then also little things of what's the customer experience like? My, my title of chief innovation officer, it's a long-winded way of saying, make sure that when we build things, they don't suck. So that's the report. That's the usability. And, and we are very good at what we do. But if you listen to some of our staff meetings and some of our developmental meetings, we're probably our harshest critics because it can't be good and it can't be perfect once in a while. Trying to make something perfect all the time is really, really challenging, but you know, a responsibility that we take really seriously. And it's very exciting to see that come to fruition when someone who's never made it through a season has their first successful season. When you have an operator who has to go back in after an ACL, and they're not sure if they're good to go to say, you need to have confidence. You've done your rehab. You've done your, your training. You're actually better than what you were before, you know, go forth with confidence. And I think that's really where data makes a big impact of giving you an empirical 
answer to now psychologically be ready. Cause we know that if you're weak, if I say you're weak, you don't know what you're doing. If I just create a negative culture and mindset, you can downgrade, downgrade response time. You can downgrade force production. But if you have confidence, just again, that's a little bit of the placebo effect as well as that, that belief, but then having not just placebo, but bought in, I am faster, stronger, or I'm, you know, moving better. That really does impact outputs um, that we see both in the tactical space and in the sporting space. Well, we talked um, the other day, and one thing I haven't kind of got to yet, you mentioned about being able to to screen, and not not in an exclusionary way, but to be able to, to as you said before, not find the winners, but find the, the people that maybe are more likely to get hurt, maybe need to develop a little bit more strength and mobility. What are some of the tools that you bring assessing people that are trying to get into a first responder or military team? And then what are some of the tools you bring to people already in there to try and foster longevity in that operator or that responder? Yeah, regardless of whatever group, usually there's a population that is doing well. George will mention, so say LA SWAT, good population to look at. And I'm sure if you talk to them, they're humble that they'll say, you know, we got to do better. This is our what ethos. But those from an individual standpoint of looking at that collection or that cohort as a what we would call a prototyping group, we want to look at what are the characteristics? How do they jump? How do they land? How do they push? How do they pull? And then how often can they do it? How frequently can they do it? And then say, okay, being strong is good. Okay, let's bench press 400 pounds. Nope, that's a flawed logic. So there's some level of strength that's required to do their tasks and then marrying that up with the prototype group to now give you a standardized data set. And if you're in that group, we want to make sure that you don't fall below that threshold. So looking at the average and thinking about an average, a standard deviation, two standard deviations with different triggering responses or interventions, we want to keep an eye on that. And that's truly, I mean, athlete monitoring, tactical monitoring, um, you're, you're waiting to observe something, but you have an intervention on deck. That, I think that's what drives me crazy right now. When people say athlete monitoring, um, what, what does that even mean? If I look and like, yep, you're slow. Yep. You're still slow. Yep. You're not getting, you're still slow. That doesn't help the situation versus saying right now, this individual is deficient in top end velocity. This is what we need to do. This is when we expect it to be, you know, come to fruition. This is the development time. In three months, we'll be there. Or vice versa, they, they won't be there. And we don't need to recruit this person. Or in the law enforcement or tactical community, especially, it's been a lot of like, not fitness tests, but fatness tests. It's a push-up. It's a sit-up. It's some sort of almost gym class-like run a mile don't be so deconditioned that you're a liability to go to the academy. I don't know if those tests are necessarily a good reflection of who's going to be good. And I also don't know if that's a good representation of who's going to last because, right, because we have output and then we have that strategy. So it's got to be this happy medium of, you know, again, I don't jump very high. So, um, you know, that's good. I, I'm probably not going to necessarily have as many lower body issues as someone say who's 300 pounds and jumps 30 inches. So we can look at that within context. So marrying to the, the master population, what our incoming people need, and then developing it. If you're telling me right now, you need to be taller, that's probably nothing we can impact. But force production is something we can make a tremendous change in. Metabolic uh, you know, conditioning and bioenergetics, nutrition, lifestyle, we can make some huge interventions. But if you don't know what you're looking for, that becomes tough. We had Adam Petway on our podcast and he eloquently put it as you have to start with a question. 
I think right now everyone's collecting data and data and data. Well, so what? Like at the end of the day, you want to fight fires and get home to your family. If that's one data point, fantastic. If that's 10, but don't hit me with 200 metrics that is just soup, you know, and I can't, you know, go through it. And it probably makes people more anxious. So I'm a big fan of boiling things down into two or three things for the next 12 weeks. This is what your focus is. And then we're going to reassess. And so that's the way we approach the tactical community. Because what's interesting is you can run, you can do this, even you can shoot. Well, can you shoot fast? Can you shoot responsibly? Can you make decisions? What happens when you shoot now and then you sh- you run a mile and then shoot again? Or if you do a 300-yard shuttle, is it different? So those are the kind of things that we need to parse out because there's huge implications, especially on the cognitive function of decision-making that really is probably more important in the first responder community than even an athlete. At the end of the day, if an athlete messes up in practice, they'll just try again. It, uh, first responder gives the wrong dose and overdoses someone, that's bad. Shoot the wrong person, that's bad. So again, I think that imprinting on the negative inverse is that you're expected to do the job at a high level. Um, that's where those minimum thresholds to your, your prototype group become so important. You got to know. And if you're a leader, as you mentioned, if your top guys or top ladies start going down because they shifted to this new nighttime shift, what are you going to do about it? Now you have the data, you're obligated as a leader to try to make a change. And that's what I hope is that wherever we go or anybody that we work with, we can you know, provide them with a useful resource to help them to make a positive change to themselves or to the groups that they oversee. Brilliant. Well, again, I appreciate that. I mean, it's another completely different lens and the, the firefighter, you know, strength and conditioning or, or fitness side is so important. And then one of the problems that we have is a lot of times a department will send some some well-meaning fired up, you know, men and women, but it will be a two-day course, a, a five-day course, and then they'll come back as the strength and conditioning guru. Um, you know, I've been in this my since, you know, my what late teens um on and off and still consider myself a white belt with maybe one stripe when it comes to the coaching world so you know hearing people who have truly been in this this world their whole career and this is their expertise all these different perspectives are invaluable for us well i want to ask you a question you mean i looked at your lineup that you've had throughout the years what are some of the biggest ahas that you've had as it related to the training because again I'd argue that especially now with everything going on, first responders in the tactical community has had the biggest surge of of human performance. You look at some of the, I think it was 1,800 jobs went out through KBR and through the H2F program for the Army. I mean, 1,800 strength coaches. I think there's only 3,600 in college athletics. That's half a population. So now the military is getting involved and and I see it in the first response as well. Has that gone well or what are the things that you're seeing from the people that you talk to? So when you have a well-organized organization, for example, the Thor 3 program, which uh, is the Army Special Forces, um, those programs are phenomenal. It seems like they get great people. They've got great prehab, great rehab. I mean, all these areas that prepare mainly Green Berets, I believe, um, for you know the jobs that they have to do. What I see in the first responder profession, I'm sure George has told you the same thing, is we're completely siloed. So you've got city and county, and you know sometimes they'll have a great relationship. More often than not, they will not play well together. And so you have this reinventing of the wheel in each of these tubes, and it's, it's a complete waste of, of money. And you have some great people that truly are strength and conditioning gurus that are also firefighters or police officers, but 
they're not utilized because they just work for this department and they actually probably are going to get utilized by a different department but their own department doesn't want to hear anything of it you know the, the profit is never received in their own land so i'm i'm still seeing a resistance we we have unions that oppose fitness standards which is absolute fucking insanity to me but that's again you talked about politics this is the issue some unions are great and they support it a lot of them sadly is a lot of self-serving and they realize that they themselves will maybe fall short so if they just prevent that ever happening then you know they'll be okay rather than advocating for their profession and raising the the wellness and performance level of everyone up so the need is absolutely there the funding and the humility to bring in real experts i think that's where we fall short Mm. Yeah, you would think that that's probably, and again, the fitness, fatness, the gotcha testing, I can see why you might not want that, but not providing a solution or an avenue for individuals to get better and putting it on each individual, that's kind of tough. That's tough financially, that's tough logistically, and uh, that's got to be pretty frustrating. Yeah, well, I mean, with the, the gotcha element, what I love about Florida is our fire academy is called minimum standards. Like they couldn't have labeled it more perfectly. This is the <laughs> shittest you should ever be. <laughs> and yet we go in and people will talk like the good old days. Oh, that was, you know, in the academy, I used to be really fit. Well, that was the worst you should have been. You should be fitter and stronger. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm 48. As we age, of course, there's some deficits that, that you know, come along with that. But you should be progressing. So... I don't think that someone should come through, test everyone, and then start firing people on the spot. But there does need to be a line drawn in the sand. Okay, we're going to start implementing this. In two years, we're actually going to make this punitive. But in the meantime, we're going to start working with everyone. We'll do a baseline test. And then we we will work with you to get you back to where you need to be. Because no one loses with that. If you are at a point where you just don't care anymore or you've got physical limitations where you just cannot do the job, that's an entire conversation for that individual. Maybe fire prevention is where you need to go or, you know, logistics or whatever. So, you know, no one should be losing their job. But should you be responding to a 28 story of a building where a kid's stuck in an apartment? No. But the other side of it is everyone else who was kind of that middle group that found themselves deconditioned because this, the sleep deprivation and all these other things are real. And they will create an uphill struggle for these men and women to maintain their fitness and wellness. Getting them back on to where they need to be is not only better for who we serve, but now you're increasing the chance that they will actually get to enjoy their retirement with their loved ones. What happens at the moment is it it seems to be a pretty universally accepted um, number. Roughly, we die about five years after retirement. And when you think about the day one of those men and women, I would argue they're probably some of the more physically and mentally resilient people in their community yet they're dying 12 plus years younger than the average person. So it's, it's you know, there is no downside. We perform better, we live longer, but it's the, like I said, it's the um, job justification and the fear amongst people that know that mirror will be held in front of their face as well that prevents them advocating for their own men and women. And I find that disgusting. Do you think that the community res- would respond better to punitive response for not meeting the standard or a positive increase of options. So I think about, you know, if you don't hit this time, you got to run and do conditioning. Or if you hit this time, you get to take a, take an extra shift or you get to do something. I, I remember we, we experimented with this at Yale for um, camp 
that if you took your conditioning test and you passed, that again, there were just certain perks and benefits that you could do. And it was set up. You didn't have to be there in the summer. But again, if we asked you to do something and you were able to be squared away enough to do it, um, that that worked for for a good majority of the time. And we tried with different teams. And I think that punitive versus positive comes down to the culture. What do you foresee if you had a crystal ball? How do you think which system would get the biggest response? I can... I compare it to the special operations, special forces groups, because they've all, all the men and women that come on the show that are from those organizations have said, we hold police and fire to the same standard as ourselves. Another um, community that people don't really think of is lifeguarding. And I was a lifeguard for quite a long time. If you fail your lifeguarding research, you don't have a license. You can't stand by the water and watch people because lives are at stake. The SEAL community and a lot of these other ones, they, they self-evaluate. If you can't make the cut anymore, you have to leave the SEAL teams or the Green Berets, you know, whatever it is. If you can't stay operationally at that point that that you're supposed to. So I think, you know, we could be kind of softly, gently about it. But when it comes to a profession where lives are at stake and you when you walk through the door, you were told this is the minimum standards. I've seen people do, oh, you get an extra 50 cents if you pass this test. And it ends up just people trying to cut corners. Oh, come on, that was a push-up, wasn't it? You don't know. You should be holding yourself to the point where you blow the fucking test out of the water every single time because the only person that's going to save that child or that person is you at your peak. And if you allow yourself to be deconditioned, then go you know, deliver supplies to the fire stations or go check sprinklers in buildings. But you should not be allowed to half-ass a profession where someone might die because you didn't take your job seriously. And, and that, that also includes, to be very fair, an environment that allows those men and women to get to that place. So it's a double-edged sword. You have to have ownership from the individual, but you also have to create an environment that gives them the tools, including time off to rest and recover, so they can be at their peak when needed. Assuming that you had the right personnel and you mentioned those special forces, there's a lot of selection that goes into that and taking firefighting and and we'll call it law enforcement as well. In that selection process, you go in and call it your just regular army, regular Navy and that leveling up. What would you do or do you see there being an issue where you get into certain communities where they just don't have the talent? Because I think, I guess that might be one of the fears is, yeah, you didn't pass the test, but now we also don't have enough people, nor will the department or the county fill that spot versus everybody's trying out for Rangers and, you know, same thing on the seals. They reject still, what's the dropout rate in, uh, from initial time to hell week is something like 80%. Yeah. I think the attrition, they have like, I think 20% left. So yeah, 80% lost. Yeah. It's not short of people trying out, but I just wonder, would you foresee that in certain communities, you just wouldn't have enough talented people? And like, what would you do with that? It's interesting because I've got to observe this Anaheim when, you know, it was near Santa Ana, they held their bar extremely high. They, what, you would get hired and they would lose, they would get rid of about 25% of every hire class. So you had your uniform, you're at a station. If you didn't cut it in that first year, you were gone. And in my class, my, my hire class, we lost again 25%. Then, and then we had people lining up out the door to be an Anaheim firefighter. Conversely, when I went to Orange County in Florida, it was 18 and a heartbeat. You know, the and then the one after was even fucking worse, but there were no standards and there's almost no one lining up to work for them. The benefits were good, their pay was good, but their reputation was dog shit. I mean, if I'm getting completely blunt. So I think, I don't think that the SEALs ever have any problems with candidates lining up and they have the ability to cut 
80%. I think that's the real conversation. If you set your bar high and there's a there's a, a challenge to the high performers of the world, you're going to have people lining up. But if you just, you know, as this county here, well, you're going to be working 56 and then probably more like 80 hours a week, the pay shit, there's no extra time off and we're bleeding people. Is that really going to attract people? So you have, do you want to be Anaheim or do you want to be, you know, my last place, for example? So I think that's the other thing. If you, you know, all these, all these colleges, you mentioned Yale. Do you think that the academics will ever have any problem getting, you know, students for Yale on the academic side? No, because it's known to be an elite place. If you make, if you see your own department you know, in that way, and you give people the support and the, you have the actual work week that is attractive because they know they'll actually be able to succeed and excel in that organization. I don't think you'll have any problems, but I can tell you a hand on my heart watching this from, from Orange County, from Marion County, if you just open the door and anyone that can physically fill a seat is going to walk in, that's when you're going to get the recruitment problems. It's the actual polar opposite of what most people would think. So it's almost like you're rotting from the inside out. W- would you say that from the unit level makes the biggest impact or is that a leadership? Because sometimes a leadership gets removed from the day-to-day stuff. And I know the military has talked about when you put someone in charge of a platoon or you know you get new leadership and you can have a you know a, a unit that's not great, a task unit that's terrible. And then one, one person comes in and can change. And like the people didn't change. The standards were raised and the leadership was there. But you mentioned that in the firefighting, it's so siloed. Where does that transition start? If someone's listening and they want to make a difference or they say, yeah, no, I get it. Is that a unit level thing or is that a leadership up top? I think, I mean, the ideal combination is both. I know of people that are incredibly um, high performing despite their departments. My last one, there's some great people. One of the one of my old fellow firefighters actually is joining me on my, I train a tactical athlete class once a week in the CrossFit gym here for free for all first responders and military that, you know, want to show up. And he comes, great shape. He's a, you know, pediatric nurse as well, just a phenomenal firefighter. He is excellent despite his department. If you had him and a bunch of people like him and a great leader that would be a phenomenal it should be one of the best departments in the planet it's just it's so mismanaged um so i think it's a combination of two you'll hear even jocko willink talking about one of their first leaders and they all basically ganged together and got rid of him that's the lesser known you know part of his story unless you go to the the conference but um you know so i think it's both you have you can you can create a cohesive firehouse in a bad department um, and, you know, with the fitness standards, people say, well, we shouldn't have to have, you know, tests. And I agree. We should be self-starters where we keep ourselves in great shape. But, you know, where is, you know, if you don't have that in- entire group of people that are so self-disciplined that they will work out regardless, and I've been in those crews and they're phenomenal to be in, then the next step is to at least have a standard, as you said, those parameters. If you fall below here, whether it's a collegiate athlete, an NFL athlete, or a, or a tactical athlete we need to get you back up or we need to have a conversation about if you're going to be wearing the uniform anymore it's that simple and i would imagine in the first responder community similar to the athletes they want to know why alignment hates running the 40 yard dash why do we do this people don't even know where the 40 came from you know and it came from the dallas cowboys trying to select the gunners to get under a punt because the punt hang time is 4.8 seconds Hence, the 4-4-40 means you would meet the ball carrier to not advance it. So like, okay, I can kind of see how that makes sense. Doesn't happen a lot in football that you run perfectly straight, but you could see how like that logic train goes. And then alignment's like, I'm not 
if I'm running 40, we got bigger problems. I'd imagine in the first responder community, telling them to bench, telling them to do whatever probably has a lot to do with, well, how does that really help me with my job? And I think at least from my experience as a coach, I'm never going to ask you to do something that I don't have a legitimate, valid rationale behind it. And I'm going to ask you, does that make sense? And be humble enough that if you tell me, listen, I've seen tons of guys that are good or tons of ladies that have been fine. You kind of eat that because again, I'm not the one going in fighting the fire. But if I say, hey, if your relative landing force is getting above nine, uh, like 500% or five times your body weight, you probably want to get that looked at because you like doing your job, but at 600, 700 or 900, that is not conducive to a long-term career. If your shift in asymmetry is 5%, 10%, cool. It's 30%, 40%. So 40% favoring a leg, that's not good for a 20-year career. And so people don't look at it as a test. It's a, wow, this will keep me doing my job. This will keep me healthy. And I think that if they, they don't have that association, like you said, you get that kind of resistive, you know, I'm, we used to get that, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really a practice player. I, you know, I'm more of a gamer. And I was like, what do you mean gamer? Well, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm basically throttled down until it's game time. But we broke that by saying like, you need to do it for the people around you. And I do think that is a commonality within any tribe at the unit level. Do the people around each other, they don't have to love each other. They don't have to be all kumbaya, but you know, we got to get on the truck or we got to go on this thing that I trust to the left and right. You're going to do your job. And that's to your point. These aren't physical standards for fun. This is because these are the things that we know that correlate with being able to come home to our family. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, I've been doing too much talking for an interview, so I'm going to put the uh, microphone back in your face again. So you haven't just started an amazing nonprofit called 40 Staples Strong. There is a pretty powerful, you know, health story of your own that's the uh, the genesis of that so walk me through you know when you first realized something was going on within yourself and then the the mental and the physical journey that you went through with that diagnosis yeah i never forget it i i actually was at the nsca's tsac in virginia i was at that conference and it was awesome got to see everybody and it was really it was great um but i had a little headache and you know how things are you, you know who doesn't have a little headache here and there but it kind of was sticking around. And then I came home and it still was kind of bothered me, but it was like way more than normal. Um, but then it really started to kind of bother me a lot. And I remember I, I went to see my, you know, local uh, general practitioner down, down the street and God love her. She's been around there forever. She's known me back into the high school days. So here I am now as a uh, a guy coming in saying about the pain. Um, and she said, you know what? You never, ever have complained about this stuff. Um, we're going to go get this checked out. And I was like, oh, it seems like overkill. She's like, no, no, no. What you're saying just doesn't seem like you. And I actually look back to how fortunate she took that, that single inflection and in her thought process made such an impact for me because when we went and did that, we did an MRI we actually found a giant tumor. And what was crazy about it was that I have never had anything um, in my life, anything remotely like that. So to suddenly go from being a healthy male, you know, excited, working for a great company, doing all this stuff to being like, wow, not only do you have a giant tumor, this is stat, you need to get it out. And oh, by the way, you're telling me this on the, um, the five-year, sorry, the four-year anniversary of my mother's passing, who subsequently also developed a random brain tumor. So until you get your biopsy, you're like, well, I've seen this story before and that was horrific. So to almost have a near day-to-day -day anniversary um, was, was super tough. And so anybody who uh, has ever been through it 
the, the mental side of things. They do a great job prepping you, but you need to go in because if they don't remove it, um, the tumor in and of itself can't be a problem. It could be that it ruptures the midline and it causes a seizure. It causes a stroke. And I, I've dealt with injuries as an athlete and I've also done tons of rehabs, but the brain is different because it's inside you. And so it's not like you hurt your elbow. Um, it's the brain is a physical thing, but it also is the center of your consciousness and your psychology. And, and suddenly, and I've had conversations with other brain patients, that one conversation, you know, completely changes your calendar of life. You think most people are like, oh, what's my five-year plan, 10-year plan? You don't know if you're going to make it out of surgery. You don't know if you're going to make it a year. And so that was an interesting process. Went through the actual surgery at Mass General. Uh, Dr. Curry is, is, is an angel sent from heaven. Uh, I've told him that to his face. He's an absolutely incredible individual. And just finding out from him just how many people suffer from these, roughly 18,000 people a year get diagnosed. They range from meningiomas to glioblastomas and everywhere in between. Um, and so that was, that was interesting. And the, the rehab, I'm not going to sugarcoat. It sucked. You are excited to be able to get your catheter out. You are excited to walk across the room and pee. You're excited to go up and down the hallway and being there and seeing other people at various stages. Some went well, some didn't go well. Some people, they told me they're like, you may not remember things. You may not remember people. I was like, am I going to know what a barbell is? I'm going to be able to, am I going to be able to squat? Um, and they're like, we don't know. And they're not kidding when they say they don't know. So that is super challenging when you wake up, but nonetheless, you go through it. And then you go through that physical journey. You start doing the rehabs, um, which isn't much. And again, I, myself as a patient, look at it one way versus me, the coach, I was like, this is a problem. Cause the worst thing you can tell a brain patient is do nothing for two weeks. So of course I didn't, I actually got my aura ring and I started sleeping as hard as I could. And I tried doing the meditative breathing and box breathing is a great practice for anyone to try to slow down and, and get control and clear your mind. The medications that they give you, uh, I couldn't. And so that was incredibly enlightening, but I, I went hard. I went so hard. I, I got you know rib cramps and my nurse, was, what are you doing? I was like, I just had my third workout today. And they're like, please stop. But <laughs> I tried, um, but I, yeah, I was going to work on breathing hard. I was gonna work on sleeping hard and trying to streamline that. And then uh, when I came home, my very first workout was piston and post. And I had my cane. I did that. No problem. And then it was stairs. And I did five steps on one side, five steps on the other. And I just remember that that absolutely crushed me with a raging headache for hours. Um, but you just kind of eat it. And I had such a good community of first responders and, and SWAT and other coaches that I've worked with. They didn't give me any like sympathy. They were like, be grateful, get on, you know, what are you grateful for? What's your goal for tomorrow? George would reach out to me. Um, and just like, there is no, there's no pity party here. And that was so important to me. And what I realized was in follow-ups, not everybody. And I, I say regular people again, lovingly, but people that haven't grown up in a team environment or in kind of these competitive elite environments for performance, I think they can fall victim to just falling apart. And as soon as your mind goes, your body follows. And so I wasn't going to let that happen. And so I talked to you know my family and friends and I was like, I'm going to start a foundation. And they're like, of course you are. And I was like, yep, 40 staples strong. Cause that's how many staples it took to sew, sew up this 10 inch scar. And, uh, so I was able to do that. And so our mission's pretty great. Um, the goal this first year was to raise enough money to make backpacks. So when I went to the hospital, I treated it like game day. Literally, I had a playlist. I had my tape. I was ready to go. I was focused. Um, but I had an ice pack. And then I had a battery charger. And I had some things that made a really shitty situation slightly less shitty. 
And so I said, wow, that'd be really cool. And so when people make donations, if they want to know where their money goes, I take it. And then I go and I try to get as many things donated as I can, but the goal was to make 10 backpacks. And so we did secure funds to do that. Um, We started that in October and we pushed forward. And so next year we want to try to do at least 50. We're also going to build out the website into a digital domain for training and then reinforcement for some of the mental stuff, even little things like you know, how do you, uh, how do you bring your scar down? Can you use PRP? You know, what can you do from, you know, uh, neuroplasticity stuff for different apps and games to help, and then have a tribe and a community for not only the patients. And this was something I didn't expect was the impact it has on the families. Like I remember people saying to me, Oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, I'm not dead yet. Like it's only a flesh wound. Like I just, <laughs> I'll, I'll bounce back from this. Like, no, it won't stop. So that's where, when I interact with people with brain tumors, you know, I give them a fist pump and just let them know like, hoorah, let's go. And, you know, if you're having the worst day today, that's awesome because chances are it's going to be bad tomorrow. Isn't like, we're going to make it 1% better and keeping that mindset. And it's just been crazy. The number of people that said, you know, I know somebody who had a brain tumor. I had somebody with a brain tumor and, and people will say, well, but you're good now. Right. And that's probably the worst thing you can say. Cause anybody in the brain community will tell you, you know, you're one scan away for the rest of your life. You're going to get scanned. If there's one speck, if there's one itty bitty piece of tissue, um, it can grow back, it can mutate. And so you live with it. You don't necessarily beat it. And so that's where, to me, uh, I was pretty young to be diagnosed with a tumor. So I'm going to be around for a while. And my goal is to kind of build that community in each bag that will go out 001, 002. I want to see that thing up in the thousands. And so as we reach out to corporate partners and individuals, there's full transparency to see where it goes. And again, this is my my side thing, but I hope that I can grow it to, you know, that 18,000 mark number is kind of, it would be a nice goal to get to of how big of a dent we can make into that. So that when somebody gets discharged, they walk out of the hospital, they feel like they have a whole team, you know, supporting them and, and being behind them. And it comes in different phases and sometimes they need more, sometimes they need less, but at least a place for someone to turn to. So we'll be making more backpacks and then building out the digital platform. But anybody listening that wants to help in any capacity, again, um, super, super thankful for that. And again, look forward to kind of keeping everybody updated online. Well, you've mentioned as well, I mean, firstly, we've obviously cycled around several times now on the identity. So you've got, you know, this this person who's working around all these athletes, you're in great shape yourself. And now, you know, you're lying in a hospital bed, you're grieving, you just lost your mother for the same reason four years ago. But you also told me that in the ward, there were also children with, you know, with the same issue. So what was the emotional mental health impact? You're trying to remain positive and, and kind of project health back into your body, but you're surrounded by some of these, you know, tragic endings of some of these patients you're alongside. Um, it's changing. I'll say that it, it definitely changes the way you view things. Um, it's hard to feel bad about yourself when you've, I mean, all things considered, I've had a pretty good life. Like I don't want it to end tomorrow, but I've done quite a bit. Um, but to see someone there in a wheelchair, and again, you don't know tumors range from you know, benign to cancerous to spreading into different areas. And so when you see that kid who's six or seven, they're, they're 10 times stronger than I am. You know, their mom's crying, their dad's crying, and they're in a lot of pain. And some of the toughest people, they wouldn't say anything, but you just kind of look around, give a head nod, um, something like that. But that was really tough. So it's hard to feel bad for yourself. Um, but that being said, why I think too, you mentioned earlier on about mental health and, and wellness and support. 
you need to be nice to people. I know that sounds like a, an old grandpa thing to say, but God, like you don't know what people are going through and just a, Hey, I'm so glad you're in my life. You know, thank you so much. Take that time, that pause and that reflection and put some good juju out into the universe. Cause very quickly. And we've seen it. I mean, we've seen it in sports and in the news. You don't know if you have tomorrow. So taking the time today to be super grateful and super you know, gracious to everybody that's helped you, that's what I saw with those kids and spending time with them and you know, making sure that some of the backpacks have some stuff that's geared towards them because it's tough. That's a long road. And you can be alive and still not living. And I think people need to understand whether that's physical or that's mental. You can see people that are just you know, the eyes are open, but the lights aren't on. And so you, when you come in and you're not emotionally intelligent enough to see that, you know, sometimes your words or your behaviors can have really profound impacts, even little things like just checking in on somebody goes a long way, especially with what's going on in the world today. It never hurts to put a bit of kindness out into the world. Well, I couldn't agree more. You're preaching to the choir. I mean, I think that's, that's it. And the sadly, that's what we don't see in quote-unquote leadership at the very top the last few years that enca encapsulates both sides you know there's a lot of division and not a lot of community and building and kindness and compassion so i think we need to see a lot more many many of the layers and it doesn't take much i mean good you know just thank you thank you for everything you've done the number of people i've said thank you to that were long overdue and they're like what do you mean no no actually when you said that you know a few years ago i was actually thinking about that you know, when I was sitting laying in bed and the headaches for anybody who doesn't know, the headaches get so bad that you can actually justify why you don't want to do it anymore because you don't know if it's going to go away. You don't know if it's going to get worse. All you know is you have about two more hours until you can get that med to take the edge off and it's having less and less effect on you. And mind you, while you're taking the meds, the very thing that takes that pain away makes you nauseous and sick and then all the other problems. So, trying to be very resilient in that headspace, a text message from everyone saying, get after it, not sorry for you. Is there anything I need to get after it and then will yourself and get up, take three steps today, take four steps today and just do it. And I think that's probably the greatest impact that we can have, you know, translating that community and positivity. It doesn't, we don't know what the world's going to bring. We don't know if our leadership's ever going to get squared away, but like really kind of look at what we are, which is united. United States or United um, as a community, focus on that. You can have differences in whatever, but I think being a good person, reaching out, and I, you know, I don't agree with what you said, but hey, let's come on over and have a beer. Let's come on over, you know, and uh, you know, have a party or something like that. I think that that stuff goes a long way. And in history's time, when things get tough, you typically look to the tribe, like you look at how people bond up, and so people that aren't necessarily bonded up or people that aren't engaged, reach out, bring them into your community. It goes a long way, whether it's religion, whether it's the gym, you mentioned CrossFit, you know, we've got our encompass down the street here, you know, even within Hawken, you know, I've got guys all over the world and jump your phone call away, your zoom call away. And so more than ever, um, use our technology to do what we can. And that service, I, I forget who I heard it from. Uh, I was at one of our conferences. It's very hard to be sad and depressed when you're serving. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, yeah, go work at a soup kitchen, go reach out, help somebody out, do those little things you mentioned you do for the tactical community one class a week. I think that was spot on with it. If you're feeling down or you're having a hard time, serve. Well, the people that you serve now then help the next. That's how you can create a ripple within your own community. And it literally doesn't take much. And so I think that that's where, you know, again, we can make such a huge difference in the people that are immediately around us and even people listen to this podcast. 
I listened to some of yours too, that, you know, some of the things that you said with some of the previous guests that it kind of hit hard. And so you sit and think about it. So we have these new mediums and we have this opportunity, use it for good and start by doing that with an individual choice. Absolutely. Well, one more thing I want to hit before we go to some closing questions, if you've got time, you mentioned about when some people get these diagnoses, there's a kind of, a, there is a giving up. And I've got one of my friends who uh, is originally from the Holland, but she was a law enforcement officer here or is again now um, uh, in America. And she had, I think it was the exact same tumor that you had, if I'm not mistaken, but the same thing. She went from this incredible tactical athlete to basically a skeleton for a while and then was having to build herself up. Talk to me about, you know, some of the mentoring. What a what is the dark place that people can find after a diagnosis and how do you help um, kind of invigorate them and, and give them the belief that they can rebuild themselves again? Yeah, I mean, that's we're going to get heavy here quick, but I, one of the things I advise people through 40 staples, whatever tumor you have, it's going to suck. Don't let anybody fool you. Don't like benign this, that, all the, the medical thing. It's going to suck. It's going to be tough on you professionally. It's going to be tough on you personally. It's going to be tough on the people around you more so than you can imagine. So I would ask, what is your scout? And I'm like, what do you mean your scout? Well, when we go into games, we always scout the other team. We go through training, whatever, set that up. Cause most people won't have surgery when they get a diagnosis like that within 24 hours. But you can say, who's going to be in charge of my medical? Who's going to be in charge of my finance? When I come home, who can be there? Do I need a nurse to be able to come take care of me? have a good two week prep so that that way, when two weeks comes, a bunch of things start to happen just like it would for a game. And then when you get in it game day, which is surgery day, and then depending on what you have, you have about two weeks where you're going through pretty intense recovery um, before you get into rehab, you've got your caretakers in place. And just like in a game or in a team or in a squad, the expectation that you're going to be a rock and make it through it is pretty silly. And that's kind of an unnecessary um, pressure that a lot of patients I find put on themselves. You, you're going to be at the very, very bottom and you're not going to know how to get up. You're not going to, you're going to feel terrible and you're going to have all sorts of thoughts all justified by the way. And you got to be able to justify and go through those things. But once you think through that and you're sitting at the bottom, I need you to pick your chin up. I don't have, you don't have to start moving yet, but you got to pick your chin up. If you can't pick your chin up, You've already had that meeting two weeks prior to have somebody there. And for me, it was the get up. What are you going to do? Be grateful. I'm not going to sit passively for two weeks. I'm going to start my sleep training. And everyone laughs at me. I was like, I set a PR. I lowered my HRV by like five points. That's what I needed. And not that that works for everybody, but I had at least a plan and a roadmap. And then I had my group of people came to visit at the hospital. And sometimes you want people to visit. Other times you don't. And so, but having those conversations and putting people on point and not just one person, because one person can't handle it, put together your squad. And again, a lot of that comes from my kind of football background of that. It takes an entire team of support staff to get through an event. Rehab is a team sport. And I was so embarrassed. I didn't want to tell anybody. And I remember one of my buddies be like, yo, recovery is a team sport. And just even hearing that, I was like, oh, okay. So you're, you know, you don't have to take that weight on the world. And all I would say is when someone does feel guilty, cause this happened to me, if you're so guilty about it, pay it back tenfold when that person has problem to, you know, make yourself feel good. And so like to my buddy, you know, who said that to me, I was like, I'm forever indebted to you. Even though it was a small thing, he was part of my team, part of my unit to be able to pick my chin up. It's like, okay, and now we go and you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days, but having that team support, I think makes a massive difference. But I was shocked. It's tough. Sometimes people don't have family. They don't have support. 
And so how can we start to get ahead of that? So when you're in those dark times, um, even the darkest of dark, you just pause, accept it, and then just focus on picking your chin up. And if you can't, and that's totally fine, you have that network there. And I think that that's where, from a communication standpoint, the expectation you're going to make it on your own, you make it harder than it has to be. I mean, ultimately, you're going to choose the journey and path that you take, but having that group there makes such a difference. And then just pay it back. Oh my God, I can't thank you enough. No, no, you actually can. Like when I go through shit or I need a babysitter, I need something, be there. And and I've seen that happen tenfold. And that seems to be a really good strategy. Um, because again, your mind, especially in the brain tumor, will start playing tricks on you. And you need to know that. And And, and they're valid. They're valid tricks. They're valid feelings of sadness. They're valid feelings of giving up. Good. Accept it, eat it, and then let's pick our chin up. And if you can pick your chin up, you can make it to that next day. And that's been super helpful for myself and then other people as well, because that mental component takes time, both acutely, but then chronic as you're rebuilding yourself. Like you said, that lady, um, you feel like you have this armor that you have to rebuild because who am I? Am I sick? Am I the brain patient? Am I the triathlete? Am I the coach? Who am I? And that process takes time. You know, and if you bake a cake at 600 degrees, it doesn't cook it twice as fast. It just burns it. So go through your own time and your pace and have your team there to support. And I also think, especially patients, if you're listening, a lot of people are willing to help. You'd be shocked how many people, if you ask for help, they will. And if you can't ask for help, talk to me and I'll ask for you because I don't really care. Um, and when you see that, people are just so grateful. But um, again, I think the only reason why I can have this perspective is because I've been through how many competitions in sport and seeing different models and part of an elite community where failure isn't an option. We're going to do it. And we're going to, we're going to every day, just try to get 1% better. Don't be the old you in overnight and, and focus on that. And that tends to help keep the, the dark times a little bit brighter. Well, I want to thank you for that perspective. I mean, firstly, there will be people listening to this that probably are diagnosed with some sort of cancer or tumor that this is directly pertinent to but then you don't have to be a genius to realize this applies to a knee injury a back injury or an addiction or a depression this whole it takes a village um is so important and i think this is the problem with the mental health conversation is people feel because we are a selfless you know type of profession ultimately we will literally give up our lives for a complete stranger if it comes to that we don't want to ask for help we don't want to be a burden which is also sadly that feeling of burdensome is is a huge um red flag in the whole mental health thing because a lot of times that is the precursor to suicide but understanding that tribes have always existed since the beginning of time and that you're supposed to be part of a unit and i can attest a hundred percent the number of people i've heard People are just dying to help. Good people, which is most people, are truly wanting to help. They just need to be asked and being given some direction. So everything that you said, I mean, it's obviously so pertinent to people if they've got a diagnosis like yours, but also the application can be in so many different areas. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get the poor me's. That's going to happen. So when it does happen, accepting that goes a long way. And and I wouldn't consider myself super, super religious, but definitely believe in, you know, a higher, higher thing than myself. And I remember one of the, uh, the priests I worked with said, just remember, God will only give you, give you what you can handle. And I was like, well, shit, I didn't know they had so much faith in me. I mean, couldn't we get the light version <laughs> here? What are we talking about? Like, I'm glad he's excited. Could I get a roadmap? Can I get this? And then, and again, it comes back to, you have to have faith. And so even in your toughest time, he's only going to give you what you can handle. And 
I think when you come out the other side, if I didn't go through all that, how do I make a foundation? If I didn't go through that, how do I look someone right now? And sometimes when you get the staples, they get all leaky and you got pus and it's not fun and it's whatever, but that I can get in there and make a joke, get someone fired up. That's a pretty cool gift. And then also in coaching, you know, when you talk about stress, that, that changed a lot as, oh, I don't want to, I hope I don't miss a pass. I hope I don't, you know, I hope I hit the free throw, like it consequentially in the whole scheme of the universe, like that, that's what, that's what stresses you. So it gave me a whole different gradient of stress and probably more so just appreciation. I mean, I, I love going out with my dog and playing fetch. I love going and just triggering with my friends. I love just going outside and just taking those moments. And I think part of that too, I even put in some of that came out of the pandemic when you had a little bit more time to do things. Cause I've been so full throttle, like tunnel focused on, on what I wanted to accomplish, slowing that down, changing jobs, then getting into this. Um, you know, it definitely has changed that perspective, but I think if anything, things are a lot slower and, you know, you appreciate that each day cause you don't know. Like you're, you're one scan away from being like, guess what? You thought this, this nightmare was over. It's back, but I'm not going to live every day. And nor should anybody listening because you have a diagnosis or because you're feeling a certain way today. That's not who you are. It's what you're going through for some period of time. But if you can pick your chin up, then there's a chance to be 1% better. And, and like I said, I keep coming back to it. You may not be able to pick your chin up that day. And that's where you need to have help. People want to help, but you have to ask. And even just that practice of, you know, extending yourself, how can I help asking that? If we can do that, I think it makes such a positive impact so quickly as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure people are, you know, enamored by all the different kind of topics that we've covered today. Firstly, where can they find Hawking Dynamics if they want to, you know, kind of learn more about that side of what you do? Yeah, Hawk and Dynamics, you just go to the website. So we have a form there. We have tons of information kind of broken up. We have the blog. We have tons of videos. We have the podcast. So I actually oversee that. So it's called Talk and Force. So you can look it up. It's on Apple, on Spotify. And so we try to bring in guests from all over um, different industries that are kind of elite at what they do. Um, you can shoot us an email, all the contact information's there. And, um, you know, whether you're a practitioner, whether you're an athlete, um, happy to help out on any of that kind of front. And then what about social media? Are there any places that you exist? Yeah, I'm trying. Like I, I, this is going to sound bad, but like I literally got locked out of my Instagram account. So I don't know how I did it. I switched phones. So I'm actively working on that. I know I'm supposed to be better, but I don't, I don't come from a generation that wants to put everything online, but I do feel, especially as it relates to 40 staples. So 40 staples has its own Instagram account. Um, a little flexing bicep. It's the mass general color blue. Um, but my personal one is bulldog.strength. Um, so hopefully by the time this gets published, that'll be back online, but uh, definitely reach out at 40 staples and, and 40 staples.com. You can go to the website as well, um, but just happy to help. So beautiful. Well, Thomas, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, from you know your initial life journey, all the the applications that you've taken from the collegiate coaching world, and and you've applied them to the tactical athlete space, and then your own personal journey. There's been so much for people can pull out of this. So I just want to thank you so so much for being vulnerable today and being so generous with your time. Oh, thank you so much. Again, I've listened to them, and to be a part of something like this. What's nice about the long form spoken word is that we don't know how many people this is going to impact, and so then. When I, you know, was connected with you, the opportunity to do this is huge. And I hope that it makes, you know, at least one person's day a little bit better. Uh, and hopefully this lasts for a long time um, and it can help generations of people. So thank you so much for having me on. Mm -hmm.